Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. How many of you are enjoying our study through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians? We've been preaching through that letter. We're going to continue where we left off last weekend this morning. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 uh, and read along with me what Paul has recorded um, in Scripture by the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit in verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times... And the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. The Bible is a book of stark contrasts. The Bible speaks to us of saved and lost, of believers and unbelievers, of heaven and hell, time and eternity, sin and obedience, humility versus pride, lost versus found. The Bible says that there are two ways in this life, that there is God's way and that there is man's way. And the Bible, of course, introduces us to Jesus. And Jesus himself is a man of stark contrasts. Consider, for example, his words in Matthew 7. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus speaks of this narrow gate and this wide gate. He contrasts the narrow road with the broad road. He speaks of sheep and goats and wheat and tares. He says that God has prepared vessels of wrath, and there remain vessels of mercy. He says unequivocally, you are either with me or you are against me. 
In John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And this is Jesus' way of saying that he is the right way and every other way is the wrong way. And whereas we exist in, and in many senses are formed by a, a culture that champions nuance and ambiguity and gray areas, Jesus presents to us a reality that is very much black and white, categorical and absolute. In the four gospel accounts, we meet the Jesus uh, who in his first coming came in humility. He came to lay his life down. But in stark contrast in our passage today, Paul speaks of this specially appointed day of the Lord when Jesus will instead come to conquer and to judge. And just as Jesus is a man of stark contrasts, and just as his word is a word of stark contrast, this day of Jesus will be a day of stark contrasts. And in this text today, Paul shows us three contrasts concerning this day which God promises is coming. First, this day will be characterized by destruction, not peace. Look again at what he says in the first three verses. Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now I want to just pause for just a moment and provide context. We're at a point in this very brief letter where Paul is effectively addressing two pastoral and theological concerns. He wants to, he wants to address those who have died in Christ, believers who have passed away, and those who live in in darkness, those who don't know Jesus and are, what he says, spiritually asleep. And last week, we saw Pastor Andrew preach from the previous text where Paul addressed that first concern. Many of these Thessalonian Christians had lost friends. They had lost loved ones. They had lost family members. And they were concerned about these loved ones that they had lost that Paul says had died in Christ. And so he writes to them to comfort them. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. This is a euphemism for death. That you may not grieve as others, others do who have no hope. And so Paul's first concern uh, in this part of the letter is to kind of clear up the confusion that they have about the ultimate fate of their believing loved ones who have died prior to Jesus coming back. And many of these Thessalonians are evidently concerned that, hey, our loved ones passed away. Jesus hasn't yet returned. Are they going to miss out on any spiritual benefits when Jesus comes back? Are they, are they, are they going to miss out on this reunion with him? And Paul wants to assure them that when Jesus comes back, they will be raised just as he was. Paul says to them, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. And so what Paul is doing is he's he's, he, he is tying their grief to their lack of understanding. He knows that if he corrects their lack of understanding, then he can provide them with hope. So his first concern at this point in the letter is to inform so as to bring hope. 
But now in this text, this weekend, in chapter 5, Paul's second concern at this point in the letter is to inform so as to dispel or to remove fear. And evidently some of these Thessalonians, some of these early Christians were confused about the timing of this day of the Lord. And they were afraid of having to face the wrath that this coming day would bring. So Paul here in this text is writing to these early Christians to encourage them that the wrath of that day is not coming for them. I want to switch gears for just a minute. How many of you would agree that like over the last two years, times have been a little bit crazy? Like, I don't know about you, but there are moments I've had over the last two years where I just think like, man, we are at peak crazy right now. And then they get crazier, right? I've had conversations with many of you. Um, It seems like our national politics and and geopolitics are moving in increasingly concerning directions. We've seen traces of, you know, totalitarianism locally and, and globally. And thinking about the state of our own culture, friends, not only is our culture now kind of post-Christian, but it feels more and more anti-Christian. Uh, today is 9-11. I remember that day. I mean, I woke up and I was going to I was gonna drive to Long Beach State. I was in college to go to a philosophy class. And I, and I remember turning on the TV and, and, and seeing those planes fly into the... And I remember the, the response of our culture and how people... The church here was full the next weekend. I mean, packed the next weekend, for weeks and months, people instinctively turned to God when that happened. Today, it feels like we're no longer one nation under God, but one nation raging against him. Things seem uncertain, dystopian, at times scary. Many of you have remarked to me over the past couple years that, man, Mike, it, it feels like we're getting close to Jesus returning. How many of you have ever wondered that recently? But friends, this is not the first time in history uh, when, you know, in the church, circumstances have provoked like this kind of speculation about when is Jesus coming back? Just like many of us today, many of those Thessalonians then were kind of preoccupied with what Paul calls here the times and the seasons. They were preoccupied with trying to, to pinpoint or predict the day that Jesus would return. They had lots of concern about this return and about this day. And evidently, they were afraid that, uh, you know, God's wrath would fall on them. What would become of them? We're going to talk about that day in just a minute. But first, I want, to just see, I want us to see how Paul addresses their preoccupation with trying to pinpoint that day and determine that time. Look at what he says to them. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Like as we've rehearsed a number of times as we've preached through uh, this letter, we've pointed out that Paul had been with these Thessalonians. He had discipled them. He had ministered to them. He had taught them. He had instructed them. And there's some sense in which we can say undoubtedly he instructed them about these last things, about things concerning the end and Jesus coming back. But I think that what stands behind his remark to him, to them here, more than his previous instruction to them, is actually the instruction of Jesus himself. Paul references here in verse 1, the times and the seasons. And he's using technical language. This is theological language. It's precise language. He says, now concerning the times 
and the seasons. He uses the exact same words and the exact same language that Jesus uses with his disciples when he speaks to them after he has been resurrected, but before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. We read about this in Acts chapter 1. Luke records, So when they, his disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What's going on here in this moment? Uh, Jesus' disciples are with him again. They have watched him be betrayed. They watched him be hand over. They watched him uh, flogged and mocked and tortured and beaten. They watched him hang on the cross and expire. They watched him go in the tomb. Then three days later, they came to the tomb and they watched, you know, as, as they, they went in and, and behold, he was not in the tomb. And now he's been raised and he appears to them. And after all this, here they are with him. And they're thinking, okay, you died and you're back. Let's go. It's time, Jesus. Restore the kingdom to Israel. Throw off the Roman oppressors. Vanquish your enemies. Establish the kingdom. Is it time, Jesus? And his answer to them is essentially this. That is not your concern. Here's what is your concern. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. Don't be concerned with times or seasons. Rather, be concerned with spreading the word. Be concerned with spreading the good news. And in standing behind Jesus' words, even there, prior to his ascension and after his resurrection, were his words even before he was crucified, when he met with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And he told them concerning last days and his second coming. He said, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So likewise, Paul tells these Thessalonians, you have no need to know the timing of that date. You have no need for anyone to write to you about times and seasons or the day or the hour. How easily we circle our calendars and, you know, like put yarn and, you know, try to speculate about timing, all the while forgetting that this kind of speculation leads us into knowledge claims that Jesus in his humanity was not even willing to make. So we have to ask ourselves as we look at this text, what does Paul tell these Thessalonians that they need to know about the coming of this day of the Lord? And by extension, what does he tell us that we need to know about the coming of this day of the Lord? Look at verse 2. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul speaks here of this day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is, it's a big theme in the Old Testament. It, it gets a lot of coverage in the Old Testament. We could just think of the day of the Lord as, is this future day when Yahweh will visibly and powerfully and fully and finally intervene in human history and he will judge all those who have rejected his son. Somebody else I listened to said, 
it will be a day when God makes himself perfectly clear to the whole world. The Bible describes the day of the Lord as a day when Yahweh brings judgment, vengeance, retribution, wrath, destruction, fury, terror, darkness. It will be a day when the Lord brings the proud low, when God's enemies will be crushed, when God's people will be delivered, when all the hypocrites will be sifted out and destroyed. The Bible says that the terror that will be unleashed on that day is so profound that it, it describes that day in what we would call apocalyptic terms, like as though nature seems to expire and as though the cosmos itself just begins to unravel. The sun is darkened, the stars fall out of the sky or vanish completely, the moon is turned the color of blood, there are disasters and fires and earthquake and smoke and darkness. Here are some verses that speak of this day. Prophet Isaiah says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. Prophet Joel says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome or fearful day of the Lord comes. The prophet Amos says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Zephaniah says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Luke records Jesus saying, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Paul says to the Romans that this is the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Peter, the apostle, calls this the day of visitation. And John in Revelation says that this is the great day of God Almighty. Friends, this day is coming. It's coming. There is coming a day when God's patience will expire. His judgment on that day will be climactic. It will be full and it will be final. One final scripture. John narrates his vision of this day in this way, again in Revelation. Then the kings of the earth... And the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, 
hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This day that the Old Testament presents to us is the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. And the New Testament likewise presents this day to us as the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this text that we're looking at together this weekend, Paul is not so concerned that these Thessalonians know when this day is coming, but that this day is coming and how this day is coming. It will be unexpected. Look at verse 2. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Two points here. The day of the Lord will come. There's no question. Like a thief in the night. There's no warning. No question. No warning about this day which God has fixed. That is coming. It's coming is certain. And it is coming in a certain way. Paul borrows this thief metaphor from Jesus himself, who speaks of the day when he will return as, as, as a day, you know, where a thief comes. The master of the house must be ready. Think for just a second about thieves, you know, burglars. Uh, the trouble with thieves is they don't tell us when they're going to come, right? Uh, they, they don't. They don't send us a courtesy text, you know, before they break and enter. They don't, they don't give you a friendly heads up. They don't slide into your DMs with, you know, a kind, you know, reminder. They don't, they don't call ahead and supply you with a list of sought-after items. Because thieves are, by nature and necessity, unexpected. And this same unexpectedness will characterize this day of the Lord. Those who are alive when this day comes will not see this day coming. They will wake up and they will go about their business and then suddenly this day will be upon them. Unexpected. And it will be unavoidable. In verse 3 he says when people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. My wife is sitting right over here. Love you, babe. You're a wonderful wife. I remember when my wife was pregnant with, with our first child, with our daughter, Zoe, her first pregnancy. And she would get anxious about, uh, you know, the pain of labor that she knew was coming. And so we would have these conversations periodically throughout the duration of her pregnancy. And, you know, we would talk and she would share and I would comfort and we would pray and then we would kind of put it out of mind temporarily. But she knew that that pain of labor was inevitable, that it was unavoidable. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night when she went into labor with, with Zoe, um, you know, eight, eight years ago now, just about. We, we went to sleep that night. You know, Jackie was very pregnant, but we did not go to sleep expect, expecting her, her water to break and her contractions to start. But right in the middle of the night, they did. Her water broke, her contractions started, the pain began to come in waves. And so, you know, I had to get her in the car and we rushed to Torrance Memorial in the middle of the night and she labored and labored 
and labored. And Paul tells these Thessalonians that this day will come upon this world like labor pains, suddenly, unavoidably. While people are saying peace and security, and Paul here is poking at something as he's writing to people in a Roman culture, in a Roman province, Thessalonica. They were living under under the convenience of the Pax Romana, the great Roman peace, and a a kind of cultural saying uh, that people would repeat in Roman culture at that time was peace and security, in Latin, Pax et Securitas, peace and security, because they were so proud of this great Roman peace that they enjoyed. And and Paul pokes at this. While people are saying peace and security, his point is that, that there's no earthly peace Uh, no matter how great we perceive that peace to be, no matter how powerful the the empire or the emperor who stands behind that temporary earthly peace, no matter how long and how consistent our experience of that, that earthly peace, there is no peace that we as humanity can manufacture that will stop or prevent this day of the Lord. Whatever experience of manufactured peace, the residents of this world experience on that day, that peace will be interrupted. Leading up to that day, people will speak of peace. They they will feel a thin veneer of security. But Paul says that all at once, calamity will overtake them. Look at the words he uses. He uses the word sudden destruction. Then sudden destruction will come upon them. These people that Paul is is talking about, they'll just be going about their business. They'll wake up and they'll get on with their day. They will be pursuing their dreams. They will be furthering their education. They will be building their lives. They will be advancing their careers. This day is going to come and everything's going to seem hopeful and calm and ordinary And perhaps some of these people will be thinking like, I don't need any of this Jesus stuff. I don't need Jesus. My life is perfectly fine without him. Things are good. My life is good. Things are going well. No worries. And then suddenly, everything that seems so sure and solid and safe will crumble under the dreadful wrath of God. This day that God has fixed is a day of destruction, not peace. This is a hard word. But friend, if you're here and if you have not found peace with God through his son, then I'm compelled to ask you this question. Will it be more inconvenient for you to acknowledge God today or on that day. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. But that day is a day of destruction. And so if you're here, and this is unsettling, good. I encourage you to humble yourself before God to cry out 
to him to call upon the name of his son while time yet remains. Because Paul says that that day is coming and that it is unavoidable. And he concludes, he concludes this first contrast with like this, this chilling announcement. It's like an exclamation point at the end of the sentence here. The end of verse 3, he says, and they will not escape. The day of the Lord is coming and there will be no escape. There will be destruction, not peace. Next, this day will be characterized by light, not darkness. Light, not darkness. Look at the next five verses. Let's read them briefly. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So I want you to see something here. This is important. Paul, Paul invests five verses here to express five contrasts. Five verses, five contrasts. Light versus darkness. Awake versus asleep. Sober versus drunk. Day versus night. Children versus others. And he introduces these five contrasts in these five verses with these two words. But you. As we're confronted with this terrible thought of this terrible day of the Lord, these two simple words should become very sweet to us. Because Paul means for these two words to transition from bad news to good news. He means these two words, but you, to take these Thessalonians and to take us as Christians today from fear to hope. But you, Paul says to believers then and to believers today, but you have no need to worry. You have no need to fear this day. Why? Because these Thessalonians then, and we Christians today, belong to light, not darkness. Because this day of darkness, which Paul is, 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 is calling their attention to, is a day that God has reserved for people of darkness, not for his children, not for us. Track with me for just a moment. Look at, look at notice these statements that Paul makes here. Uh, he, he, he makes these statements. You are children of light. You are children of the day. We belong to the day. And then conversely, he says, you are not in darkness. You are not. We are not of the night. We are not of darkness. We're going to have like a, a very brief Hope Chapel grammar lesson. Is that okay? You guys with me? Okay. Like three of you. I want you to see that these are all statements of fact, that they are affirmations of what is. You are, you are not. These statements by Paul describe for these Thessalonians, for we Christians today, they describe spiritual reality. They, they describe the spiritual state or condition of those who are truly in Christ. Kind of the, the sexy theological term is these are indicatives, indicative statements. 
And what always flows out of indicative statements are imperative statements. So Paul will do things like this, and he does it here. You are this, let us then live this way. You are not that, let us not then live that way. You can see the relationship between these indicatives and imperatives indicated by Paul's words. Words like, so then, in verse 6, or since, in verse 9. This is who you are, so then, this is how you should live. This is not how you should live, since this is not who you are. The idea here is that truth determines action, or that right believing leads to right living. And so we put all this together. Paul says to these Thessalonians, you are children of the light. You are children of the day. We belong to the day. You are not in darkness. We are not of the night. We are not of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Are you guys still with me? Our grammar lesson is over now. Yeah. So I was thinking about this, awake, asleep, night, day, these contrasts. And like this thought occurred to me that over the past 10 years or so, it seems like our culture has grown increasingly fascinated with zombie apocalypse stories, right? Like, I've never really watched this show, but I've seen it advertised over and over again. It feels like for a lifetime, you know, that show, The Walking Dead. And like, I I started thinking about this. I was like, okay, so, so there are zombies. They kill the zombies. Then there are more zombies. Like, how long can that narrative sustain itself? Like apparently 10 seasons. And then, there, then there's like spinoffs, you know, of this show. Zombie apocalypse stories, Walking Dead. This seems like, you know, playful fantasy to us. But Paul is saying in this text that there's a very real sense in which the people of this world are sleepwalking through this life. That they are walking dead. They're very much alive spiritually or physically but they're spiritually dead. They're very much awake and alert physically, but they're actually spiritually asleep. And even more emphatically, he says that they, that they are, spiritually speaking, drunk, that, that their spiritual perception is distorted, that it's, it's out of alignment, that, that, that it is not properly oriented to reality. And these people that Paul speaks of They certainly feel alert. They feel alive. The world around them feels fully alive. And if we could just like, you know, stop one of these people and and interview them, you know, on, on the street, they would no doubt consider themselves to be fully awake, totally aware. Many of them would be people like us. They'd be men and women and young people and old people. Many of these people would be successful. They'd be accomplished Many of them be quite comfortable in their lives. And, and we'd look at many of these people and we'd say to and about these people, wow, what important people. What impressive people. And still others might not be so successful by the world's standards. But if you were to talk to any of these people, right, whether they're young or old, successful or not, and if you were to kind of query them in conversation, they would undoubtedly say, well, well yes, Mike. 
I'm very well aware of the world around me. I have a very good sense of this life that I'm living. Um, I'm totally conscious of my circumstances, of my successes, of my failures, of my hopes, of my dreams, of everything that I've gained, of everything that I've lost. I'm keenly aware of those whom I love and those who love me. But Paul says here that these people are actually very much asleep. We should ask the question, asleep to what? And I think the key to answering that question is found in one word at the end of verse 4. It's the word surprise. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Those who are surprised are surprised because of their lack of awareness. They're surprised because of their ignorance. Paul is saying that this darkness, this sleep, that it is a spiritual ignorance about this coming day of the Lord, about God's sure judgment, which looms over sinful humanity. That's why Paul wrote back in chapter 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. We do not want you to be ignorant to the truth. To be asleep is to be ignorant or perhaps even indifferent to not care about this coming day. But conversely, to be awake is to be aware of this coming day, to be ready for it. And Paul's telling them that this ignorance will inevitably lead to destruction. It's too late to prepare for the exam when the exam is already in front of you. It's too late to save for retirement when retirement comes early. It's too late to train for the big game when it's already begun. And it's too late to find safety when the day of the Lord surprises you. This is why Paul says to these Christians, let us not sleep. Let us keep awake. Let us be sober. Let us be ready. Notice the relationship between awareness and sobriety. Right? Sober here can also be translated self-control. Uh, self-control. So, you know, my ESV says, let us keep awake and be sober. The NIV says, let us be alert and self-controlled. The CSB says, let us stay awake and be self-controlled. In other words, our awareness of this day out in the future will provide a basis for us to remain self-controlled in the present. Our view of the future affects our behavior in the present. When you know that you have to give an account to God, and when you know that God won't forever contend with human sin, that that he will surely deal with it, then you have motivation to live carefully. If you think that you will answer to no one, then Paul says you're spiritually asleep. There's this principle at work here that your outlook determines your outcome. Can I ask you a question? I'm going to. (laughs) Friends, do you believe God's word? Do you believe God's word here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11? Noah warned his generation. And they laughed and they mocked him. They disregarded God's word. They did not believe God's word through Noah. 
and his judgment fell on them. Lot warned his family of coming destruction. And they laughed at him. They mocked him. They thought he was out of his mind. And fire rained down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. They did not escape. Jesus warned his generation. He warned Jerusalem that destruction would come upon it. Many disregarded him. His believers heeded his warning. They fled Jerusalem. In AD 70, the Romans came in and they razed the city to the ground. Complete, unmitigated destruction. Do we believe God's word about this? This day that is coming. Let us not sleep. Let us keep awake. Let us be sober. God's people are characterized by light, not darkness. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, we are children of light, not children of darkness. And that brings us great hope. Finally, this day of the Lord will be characterized for God's people by salvation, not wrath. Salvation, not wrath. Look at the last three verses with me. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. Verse 9 begins with the word for, that's an explanatory word. He's providing an explanation in these last three verses. In other words, what Paul is saying in these last three verses provide the explanation or the basis for what he has said in the previous five verses. Why is it that we as God's people can remain awake with respect to this day? Why can we have hope that we will escape the day of the Lord? Why do we not have to live in fear of it? Paul gives two reasons here. Because God has destined us and because Christ has died for us. God has destined us, and Christ has died for us. And so, for these Thessalonians, and for us, the putting away of fear regarding this coming day of the Lord, and the adorning ourselves with hope that we will stand in that day, those things, those actions are rooted in, they find their basis in these two works of God. God has destined us, and Christ had died for us. God has destined us. As I was like meditating on this text and thinking about these truths and kind of like my perspective is recalibrated in light of the reality of this coming day of the Lord. You know, one of, one of the thoughts that really struck me, and I think one of the most terrible thoughts we could have as Christians is that as God's people, we could somehow, you know, slip through the cracks in, in God's economy and still find ourselves subject to the wrath to come, that, that, that somehow we could find ourselves still under this day of judgment and that it would fall upon us. 
And you know, when we think about this possibility, the enemy likes to whisper in our ears. He likes to lie to us because he's the father of lies and he's a deceiver and that is what he is and therefore what he does. And I don't know about you, but I'll confess that I am still so prone to sin. I'm, I remain so susceptible to failure. I'm, I'm yet weak in so many different ways. And so I think to myself, well, what if I sin too many times? What if my failures are one too many? What, what if in my foolishness and in my ignorance and in, in my you know, sinfulness, what if I somehow reposition myself under God's judgment once again? But friends, I want you to see what Paul says here. He tells these Christians and he tells us that their hope and our hope regarding this day of judgment is not anchored in what they must do, but in what God has already done. He has destined us, and Christ has died for us. Think about that word, destined. He has destined us. In the original text, uh, the verb literally means to put or to place. Uh, It could also be used to describe like laying something away or consigning something. Uh, Think about the imagery here that, that, that God... In his might, by his, you know, mighty arm and outstretched hand, has has taken our lives out from under his wrath. And he has put put our lives, he's placed our lives, he's, he's laid them away, stored for salvation. That's his work. We can have confidence about that day when we'll face it because our destiny on that day is a function of what God has done, not whether or not we mess it up. That's his work. If you're truly born again, then that means that God has adopted you into his family, that he's given you the family name, that he's seated you at his banquet table, that he's he's called you son or daughter, and he'll never let you go. He'll never subject you to the wrath to come. And we can be comforted because we are not powerful enough to undo what God has already done. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. I want to ask you another question. You still awake? That wasn't actually the question. (laughs) How many of you are saved? How many of you are saved? How many of you would just say, I'm a believer, I'm saved? I think as modern Christians, we throw that term around a lot, saved or, or salvation. Um, Almost to the point that it's kind of become like Christian jargon. Like, oh, you saved, brother? Yeah, I'm saved. Okay. Uh, R.C. Sproul wrote this great book. Everybody should read it. uh, Called Saved From What? Saved From What? The Bible says that we need to be saved from God, by God, to God. And more specifically, we need to be saved from his coming wrath. Saved from what? Saved from his justice. Saved from his righteousness. Saved from his holiness. Saved from his wrath. Because God can't just forever kick the can down the road. 
He can't just forever infinitely keep showing patience and forbearance with sinful humanity. I listened to Mark Dever on this sermon, on this text, and he said, if God were to forever indefinitely extend his patience and forbearance, if there were to be no judgment, how would that be any different from moral indifference? How would that be any different from there being no right and no wrong? You see, if God never punishes human sin, that that, that makes God a moral coward. He has to deal with it. His moral perfection demands it. His righteousness demands it. His holiness demands it. His justice demands it. That is what we need to be saved from. And friends, the hope of this passage is that God has not destined us for that, but to obtain salvation. What is salvation? It is deliverance, escape, protection, safety, exemption from God's righteous wrath. Salvation, not wrath. What a great hope. What a great hope. Cling to that hope, friends. Every other hope in this life will let you down. That one will always deliver what it promises. This salvation is only possible because Christ has died for us. Paul says that this salvation comes through our Lord. Quickly, Verse 9, he says, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Those are four of the most important and beautiful words in this text, in this letter, in our New Testaments, and in our Bibles. Who died for us? Who died? In other words, who suffered God's wrath? This is a, the day of the Lord is a day of destruction, not peace. Who died? who suffered God's wrath, who endured this destruction for us as our substitute. He endured it for us as our substitute so that we would not have to endure it. He lived perfectly where we could not. He went to the cross as we ought to have. He hung and he died. He agonized and he suffered. The Father poured out all of his wrath against our sin upon his son. And he hung there in our place and he satisfied God's righteous demands. He satisfied God's wrath against sin. He drank that cup every last drop for us so that not one last drop would remain for us. And he didn't do it so that we could just, you know, float off into the ether. Paul says that he did it so that we might live with him. That, there's a purpose to his suffering, that we might live, not be destroyed on the day of destruction, but that we might live and that we might live with him. And all of this brings us to two certainties that Paul expresses in this text. This is a hard text, isn't it? Is this a hard word? This is a sobering, hard word. Let's just call it what it is. But all of this brings us to two certainties, mutually exclusive. Every life in this room will confront one of these ends. The believer's certainty, Paul says, is that we will live together with him. The world's certainty is that they will not escape. Either you will live together with him or you will not escape. 
And so, friends, I want to ask you today, I want to ask you this morning, the, the text demands that we ask ourselves, which one of those is my certainty? If you were to die today, which certainty would be your certainty? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come and that he has done everything that was necessary to secure our salvation, everything necessary to secure our pardon. There is nothing that we need to add to his finished work. It is perfect, it is complete, it is comprehensive, and we receive pardon and forgiveness and salvation and deliverance and exemption merely and simply by looking to his life. The God, God laid our sins upon him, and simply by calling upon his name, turning from our sin and trusting in his finished work and saying, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. I need this salvation that Paul speaks of. And I see that you have accomplished it and made it available through the work of your son on the cross. His work is complete. It is sufficient. It is total. It is final. And I trust in his work. I hitch my wagon to Jesus. If you haven't done that, do that today, friend. Do it today. Bend the knee today. Paul closes this. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. What more encouraging news could there be than God has destined believers for salvation and this salvation comes freely. We don't have to accomplish it. We don't have to earn it. We merely open our hands and bow our hearts and receive it. No need to fear because Jesus has gone before us. We should conclude. As I was thinking about this this week, guys, I got to be honest with you. I was thinking, man, this is literally a hellfire and brimstone passage. I was like, I've got friends coming for the first time this weekend. I hope they come back. The subject of God's judgment, of his wrath, of his righteousness, is not very popular in American churches today. It makes us uncomfortable. It offends our sensibilities. It is not conducive to filling up big buildings. But friends, I want to submit to you this consideration. Every generation must choose. Every person must choose either We embrace God as we imagine him or we embrace God as he has revealed himself. I want to leave you with Paul's words to the men of Athens as he preached to them from the Oropagus 2,000 years ago, educated, erudite, accomplished men, you know, the cream of the crop, the, the top of their day. These were men who had never before heard of the one triune God that Paul came to declare to them, who had never heard of the work of his son Jesus, the God-man who who suffered and died to atone for their sin, through whom forgiveness and salvation comes, and through him only. These are the words that Paul preached to those men who thought that they could fashion God in their own image, to their own likeness. Being then God's offspring, 
We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is Jesus. And in our text today, friends, Paul says that there are only two possible destinies on that day that God has appointed. Many will not escape, but some, some will live with him forever. Which destiny will be yours? Which end will be yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which humbles us, which confronts us, where we meet your son, where we hear of his work. Father, I pray that if there's any here this morning who don't truly know you, or that you would grant them the gifts of repentance and faith unto salvation, that you would regenerate dead hearts, and that you would cause them to be born again to a living hope. Jesus, we turn our hearts now to remember you in in communion as you've commanded us. We're so prone to forget and we need to remember. So Lord, be pleased as we remember you in this time. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.